Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. We like to pretend that giving people a choice is essential. Mostly, we use the American ideology of choice to extract profit, to distract from what's really going on, or worst of all, to avoid personal accountability. How often have we passively watched another person suffer because they did not ask for help. In scripture, the action of love is not controlled by an individual's call for help. On the contrary, it is God's commandment which illuminates the need, and the need itself demands the action assigned by God. Neither the one who gives nor the one who receives has a choice in the matter. The baptized do not ask if help is needed, but hear scripture and take action without hesitation, like conscripted soldiers pressed into service. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 32 to 37. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 414 of the Bible as Literature podcast. One of the things that I struggle with in Western pedagogy, Rich, is this insistence that the student, the disciple, has to be left alone to make their own decisions and their own choices. It's true, people do have to take accountability for their own decisions and their own choices. But there are times when people need to be pressured. And scripture is all about pressure. The classic example I give always is biblical hospitality versus American hospitality. When you go to someone's home in the Middle East, they don't ask if you would like something to eat. They give you something to eat. It's the same in Eastern Europe. It's the same in many parts of the world. People don't ask you if you'd like something to drink. They come out with a tray of coffee and tea or water or whatever. Because why would you ask? There's a need. It's your duty to offer someone an answer to an obvious need. At the Eucharistic meal, in the Gospels, Jesus does not say, would you like some? He says, take, eat. So when we come in Matthew's Gospel to Simon of Cyrene, and we've talked in the past, Rich, about how the name Simon 
can function different ways. The functional Simon can be the betrayer, Simon Peter. This Simon, this version of the functional Simon, can be the one who fulfills the meaning of the name Simon, which is to listen and hear, hear, O Israel. Isma in Arabic, you have to hear and listen to what's being said. And in this case, he is being pressed into service, we will hear. He's being forced to do the thing that must be done. It's not a question of what he wants. He wasn't asked if he would like to do this thing that must be done. But it's important that his name means the one who hears. The one who hears, and in this case, doesn't choose to obey, but is pressed into obedience, into service, to carry the cross. I want to pull this out on full display. I want this, as Paul says, on public display. I want to portray it before the eyes of every listener of this podcast, that it is very often a selfish question when we in the United States ask, well, what does this person want us to do? Because very often that's a way of getting out of accountability for what needs to be done. Sometimes you just have to say, take this and eat it. Or take this and carry it. Or let me carry that for you. You don't ask, you act. But you can only act when you're under the authority of God's instruction. And when, through the light of that instruction, you see the need. Or someone who sees the need pressures you to address the need, which is, at least from the perspective of God's commandment, clearly on display. Yes. Simon the Cyrene, we have a character that just appears in chapter 27, literally for two verses and then disappears. Interestingly, if you look at exegetical traditions in the church and that sort of thing, they build out a character for Simon because, you know, as every fan fiction writer knows, when a character just appears that you think is intriguing, you want to know some of the backstory. And if there is no backstory, you write a backstory for him. You know, the Gnostics love talking about Simon of Cyrene, saying he was the one who was actually crucified and that sort of thing. People went off on a whole story with this. What I find important in the story of Matthew itself, without going beyond the story of Matthew, is that Jesus said, you are not worthy of following him if you don't pick up your cross. And the first person to pick up his cross is Simon of Cyrene. For me, this is enough for filling in this character. He's the first one to do this piece. And I think it's really important, Father, what you mentioned about the connection. We have the Simon Peter who keeps talking about all the stuff he's going to do and doesn't do anything. And we have this other Simon who comes out of nowhere and the authorities point to him and say, it's time for you to carry the cross. Do we get Simon's opinion? No. Did Simon say something? I don't know. What do you do when a Roman guard says, pick up this cross? You pick it up. But according to the book of Matthew, Jesus says that if you want to be 
loyal to him, you have to pick up your cross. Ironically, when he's compelled by the Roman authorities, he's doing the will of Jesus, which of course ultimately begins with his father. Simon, this Simon, hears and he does. Does he have a choice? He did not have a choice. They didn't say, does anyone care to bear the cross? Oh, Simon, I see your hand is raised. Come on up, Simon, you can carry the cross. I don't think this is what's happening, Father. I think that he's compelled. He has to do it. And as a result, he does it. And I think, you know, you and I, Father, we talk so much about this that unlike American culture that spends so much time talking and worrying about intentions, there is no intention here. Because some people could say, well, he wasn't doing it out of loyalty for Jesus. He wasn't doing it because he loved Jesus. He might not have even heard of Jesus before. We don't know. He just appeared out of nowhere in chapter 27. He's a latecomer, but he did it. And that is all that's assigned to his name, is that he did it. What we could surmise from that, perhaps, is that even for a bad reason, if you're picking up the cross and you're carrying it, this is what makes you worthy of following Jesus. As they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. The word that is translated as pressed into service, agarevo, means literally to compel, to force. I want people to hear this, to coerce. You are making the guy do the thing. And that is as scriptural as scripture gets. Because to trust in the Lord, to have faith. Someone reminded me recently that I keep telling everyone to trust in the Lord. What does that mean? It means to trust the commandment. It means that doing the thing that God tells you to do, pushing forward and going through the motion, is trusting. You don't have to feel it. You don't have to believe it mentally, which is what people think belief and faith is. That's irrelevant what you think. You have to do the thing. Under compulsion is just fine. And that really goes against contemporary pedagogy, where you really have to want to do it and believe in it. It has to tap your motivations and your interests, and you have to express your free will and your choice, and, 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 and. The problem is that doesn't work. People will be comfortable and happy, but no one will do the work. It's just the way it is. And the work here is very serious because there's a brother in need. In this case, it happens to be the brother in need. <laughs> and if you understand the metaphor of the brother in need, he's every brother in need. So. Even if Simon of Cyrene is disgruntled that he's being forced to bear his cross, it might be the greatest honor in the whole story. And that's where it is the greatest honor. And that's where the functionality of the name Simon is significant. Because even though Simon Peter, who threw Judas under the bus along with his master, is the real villain of the story, he is still the chief of the apostles. Even though we all know that Paul is the real chief of the apostles, Peter, Simon Peter, still holds a place of honor, and that's reflected here 
in this functional Simon of Cyrene who bears the same name. It's not a question of, is this the same Peter? And that's a point you've made in the past, Richard. It's the functionality. It's not a question of whether or not the epistle of Judas is written by the same individual. It's the fact that you have an epistle attributed to Peter, followed by an epistle attributed to Euthas, along with epistles attributed to James and John. It's significant. And it is no small matter that Simon just betrayed Jesus, and now the same name crops up, and we are imposing on this person, imposing, forcing, compelling this person to bear this honor of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I take it once again as a kind of redemption of Peter, who's the real villain in the story, that he's going to be forced by the Lord's instruction to correct his steps for the purpose of the gospel, despite himself. But it's the compulsion. It doesn't matter. Everyone is going to have a nervous breakdown and say, but what happened in his heart? It doesn't matter. Jesus already told you the human heart is rotten. That's why you have to put guardrails around human feet. If you're going to sit here and wait until you transform the human heart, you're going to wait until the earth turns into a nuclear crater at the end of the last war. The human heart is not going to change. But if the human foot is forced to walk according to the steps ordained by God, which lead us down the path of the love of neighbor, it doesn't matter how rotten the human heart is because our steps will conform our heart to the will of God. As Paul says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by renewing your mind, which is your heart, by hearing scripture again and again so that it controls how you act, so that you are forced to carry the burden of your brother. That is life in Christ. Are you kidding me? Simon doesn't have a choice. Like I was saying before, he's carrying the cross, as Jesus said. And I am delighted by the ambiguity in the Greek because it gets picked up in the English as well. They compelled him to bear his cross. Whose cross? Jesus's cross or Simon's cross? We know that Jesus is being crucified, so we say, oh, of course it's Jesus's cross. Yes, but when Simon has to carry it, he's carrying his cross. Simon's being forced into submission to do the will of God is his potential salvation because he is, as you said, Father, forced to walk in the steps that God would have him walk in. Now, why is he being forced? By the Romans. And this is a thing that especially Americans get very upset about because they're always, who are you to tell me? Who are you to tell me? Who are you to tell me? If it's the right thing to do, you do it. I mean, if you don't like the idea of vaccines, but vaccines are going to save other people, then you take the vaccine. And if the government mandates it, or if your work mandates it, or whatever, your favorite social club mandates it, okay. But it doesn't matter, like I was saying before. The intention doesn't matter. You're doing it because you're forced or you're doing it because it's a good idea. You know what? For the person who receives the viruses 
out of your mouth doesn't matter what your intention was. The fact that Simon is doing the correct thing is all that matters. You and I have talked a lot about that at church. Who is just stepping up to get it done because it has to get done? Now, sometimes the priest has to yell at somebody to do it. Sometimes the priest has to ask nicely for it to get done, but it doesn't matter until it gets done. And if it gets done, everything is correct. Everything is fine. Get it done. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And of course, Father Paul, in his commentary on Matthew, Matthew and the canon, explains that this has to do with Jesus's refusal of any kind of an earthly kingship or an earthly or worldly understanding of what it means to be a messiah which reflects what we were saying in last week's episode richard about jesus as a shepherd being hit on the head <laughs> by the people that he came to rescue from the city because he's not the champion they were pining for when they were shouting for the victory of Bar Abbas. He's not that kind of a king, and he refuses to be that kind of a king because he's the shepherd sent by Elohim to bring back the lost sheep. But it's interesting here because there's some back and forth between the use of the word wine versus the use of the word vinegar. You and I were talking about manuscripts before this morning's program. Yes, yeah, so we have two different words in Greek. We have enon and oxos. Enon means wine and oxos means sour wine. We see a difference in the manuscripts. We have some manuscripts of Matthew which here use enon and other ones that use oxos. So why is there a dispute? Mark uses enon. The manuscripts that I see, they're using enon consistently. Luke and John are both using oxos. So now the scribe who encounters Matthew has to decide, wait, is it supposed to be different from Mark or is it supposed to be different from Luke and John? That's what a copyist always is having to maneuver. Another reason why there's oxos is Psalm 69:21. they gave me gall for my meat and my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. That uses oxos. So these are the different kinds of things that a copyist has to maneuver when they see this, trying to figure out if the person before them made a mistake or if they need to stay with what they have received. This is called textual criticism. Is it more likely that it had enon and went to oxos or that it had oxos and went to enon? My feeling is that because John, Luke, and Proverbs all push towards oxos, I would say it probably was more likely enon and was pushed to oxos than the other way around. I'm going with the SBL decision to use enon, which is the same one that Father Paul used, and so I think that that's an important direction to go. Even though it is enon, clearly this is related to Psalm 69.21, clearly. In Psalm 69, just like you were saying, Father, this is the king being crushed, calling out to God. 
69:17 and hide not thy face from thy servant for I am in trouble hear me speedily draw nigh unto my soul and redeem it deliver me because of mine enemies this is the anointed who's in trouble who calls out to God this is the shepherd who is put in charge of the sheep by the owner of the flock as he is drinking these he is accepting the wrath of the enemies accepting it a human ruler has to fight back or he loses this one is proclaiming victory on behalf of his father by accepting the wrath of his enemies and they're at this place the place of the skull Golgotha and that's Aramaic by the way it's confusing sometimes what's Hebrew and what's Aramaic it's clearly Aramaic he's at the place of the skull on the cross that Simon was forced to carry and consuming the wrath that's given to him by the enemies on behalf of the one who placed him there as the anointed Messiah. It's the compulsion. This is what amplifies the honor that was thrust upon Simon of Cyrene, that he's being compelled with the Christ. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there, and above his head they put up the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. They just need him to be a king. They desperately need him to be what they want him to be. This reminds me of Israel in the Old Testament. They want a king like all the other nations. It's the classic problem. I mean, just look at us in church. I was standing in church, Richard, you were there in my homily on Sunday, trying to explain to the community the inherent hypocrisy of our gathering. And there I was draped in these beautiful Byzantine vestments, and all you have to do is look at the icon of the crucifixion. Look how Jesus is dressed, and look how an Orthodox priest is dressed. What are you bragging about? What are you bragging about? Look how I'm dressed, and look what Jesus is wearing on the cross. You want a worldly king. You want somebody in regal garb. You don't want a naked rabbi bleeding to death on a stick in Deuteronomy. You don't. That is why Jesus rejected your wine. That is why your wine is bitter and sour. It's not the new wine of the kingdom. It's your bitter wine of worldly glory and worldly power and pretty vestments. It's so difficult for people to hear this, and we are so brainwashed by worldly propaganda. We are so brainwashed. We who post pictures of ourselves on Facebook, the way that Stalin posted a selfie of himself with Lenin after Lenin died, the way that Stalin like a kid on Instagram in 2021, doctored the photo to make himself look healthier and bigger and more emotionally connected to Lenin so the people would see them as brothers and then posted it all over the country before he began his campaign of 
totalitarian cruelty and violence, we are brainwashed by the mentality of Stalin, just like the people in this story. And it doesn't matter how many times Jesus spits out our sour wine, we will still try to make him a king like Stalin. And that is the profound and unavoidable sin of the human being, and it is the scandal of our selfie posts online. <laughs> it sounds really corny, Rich, but that's what it boils down to. It's the same thing. You want Jesus to be a king because you want to see yourself as king. That is why the only proposition that makes sense is the proposition of the cross in which our selfie is canceled. And in so doing, you cancel Stalin. This, my friends, is the deal of the deal in Scripture. And at the heart of all of it, they still want to try to make Jesus their Stalin. And it's pretty disappointing, but that's the human story. Father, here they talk about how they take off his garments and they sold his garments. Look at the cross in the church. He's got this little loincloth on. You think the Romans were concerned with Jesus's modesty that they gave him a little thing to put around his waist for the sake of his modesty? It says they took his garments. Here's the reality. The reality of a naked rabbi is too scandalous for church. Early iconographers had to add some kind of loincloth because it was too scandalous. The image of scripture itself is too scandalous for church. Let me say that one more time. The image of scripture is too scandalous for church. No self-respecting church member wants to go into church and see a giant picture at the front of a tortured naked man. No one. Yet, this is what the author of Scripture sets in front of us. This is what we're forced to look at. Jesus did not drink. He tasted what the nations wanted him to drink. But he wouldn't drink it. The only cup that he would accept is the one he was hoping he wouldn't have to accept, which is the cup that his father gave him, which brought him precisely to the position he's at right now, which nobody would want. Nobody would want this. Both Jesus and Simon, Cyrene, were compelled by the Romans. Peter managed to flee and lie his way out of it, Judas killed himself, but these are the two that were compelled by the Romans. What did Simon think about it? We don't know what Simon Cyrene thought about it, but we do know what Jesus thought because he said out loud that he would prefer not to have to go through this. Yet, he drank only the cup that his father gave him, which we have here in Psalm 69, where the nations want him on their side. They want to defeat him and either make an example of him or to subjugate him. 
But Jesus would not drink of this cup. He would only be subjugated to the will of his father. And if it was carried out by the Romans, so be it. But it's only the will of the father. Americans think that if what happens in the American government seems to be against their view of Jesus, then it must not be of God. I would challenge that, and I would say, your view of Jesus is not that of God. Because God will impose his will as he will impose his will. Some of the manuscripts add in verse 35 that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet to underscore that this is all fulfilling prophecy. The Lord said that this was going to come to pass. This vessel of possibility that God put forth in the Psalms is now filled with the reality that Matthew writes. It is fulfilled. And the cup that God places before Jesus from the prophets is filled and Jesus drinks only that which his father would have him drink. This is what is filled, and this is what is fulfilled. That's a beautiful connection. It's the Father's cup. It's the cup that Elohim offers. That's the difficult drink. It's the drink that seems bitter but is actually sweet. It's the new wine of the kingdom. This is Stalin's drink. It is Caesar's drink. It is Herod's drink. It is the drink of earthly kings. It's the drink of power and war and blood and tyranny. And that's what he doesn't want. That's the drink that he's unwilling to accept. And to the last breath, he will reject it in the hope that the people who still want to proclaim him that kind of a king will turn and repent and submit to the Torah and accept the shepherd in the wilderness as their only king. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.